Some of you might have recognized the words of that one we just sung. How many recognize the words? No one. That's an old one. Old, old hymn. Uh, probably, in my opinion anyway, of the church's repertoire, uh, the greatest hymn, greatest song ever penned on the Lord's Atonement. Uh, I walked into Chris's office on Thursday with the words and said, hey, what could you do with this? And I think it was Shelley found the music on the, on the Internet. And then uh, this is something I think we need to hear and be reminded of once in a while. The music then gets emailed to April and Chase and Richard sometime Thursday night. And between Thursday night and this morning, they just kind of whip it off. No, a lot of work goes into it, doesn't it? They gather here early on a Sunday morning and practice, and uh, I think quite right to acknowledge that every so often and to thank them, thank them for it. That was wonderful, Amen. and a tremendous celebration uh, of our Lord's atonement and what was accomplished at the cross. You can turn with me in your Bibles to First uh, Samuel chapter six. First Samuel six. Uh, the title, if. Uh, if you're looking at the sermon notes in the bulletin, you'll see that the t- title for this sermon is actually a question. Is God safe? That's it. Three words. Is God safe? Some of you will recognize that question. Some of you are nodding. Uh, it isn't original. I wish I could claim rights to it. I can't. It actually belongs to Susan. Who's Susan. Well, if you remember The Lion, The Witch, and uh, The Wardrobe, uh, C.S. Lewis's famous novel, if you've seen, read the book or, or seen the movie, you'll recall that the four children uh, make their way through the wardrobe, and they end up in the land of Narnia, and they meet a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver begin to relate prophecies to them concerning Aslan, the king. A great lion. And Susan begins to tremble and she asks this question, is he safe? Is he safe? To which Mrs. Beaver replies, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. The answer to the question, is God safe, is a resounding no. He is not safe. We have seen that in 1 Samuel. We have seen that in living color in chapter 4. 34,000 Israelite soldiers dead on the battlefield. Who was responsible for that? God. In chapter 5, we have afflicted dead Philistines in the cities of Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, Who is responsible for that? It is God. Is God safe? The answer is no. We see the same truth declared most clearly in chapter 6. And I invite you to follow along as I read this portion of God's word for us. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, sorcerers, we might say, and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? 
They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck. This means he killed. He killed 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down. Take it up to you. Is God safe? Uh, The answer is 
is no, he is not safe. The reason uh, God isn't safe uh, is simply this. Uh, God is angry. God is angry. Uh, William MacDonald defines God's anger as follows. It is his righteous indignation and fury against sin and unrepentant sinners. Now I know, I know that poses a problem. I know countless people struggle with what I've just said. And I'm hazarding a guess that there are, there are no small number in this room right now who struggle with what I just said. Um, but there it is in black and white, isn't it? We have God taking the lives of the Israelites in chapter 4. We have God taking the lives of the Philistines in chapter 5. And now we have God taking the lives of these 70 men who dared to be so presumptuous as to gaze upon the ark of the Lord and perhaps even look inside the ark. When we face this, God's anger, his righteous indignation, when we face his holiness and how it is portrayed throughout Scripture, not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, when we come face to face with it, we only have three options, friends. There are only three options. Uh, option number one is this. Um, it is to deny the truthfulness of these stories. It is, to, it is to say, look, Israel lived in the age of mythos. Israel lived in an age in which men and women uh, sought to explain any, everything and anything according to the supernatural. And so things happened in their history. True enough, they happened. But they ascribed them to God. But in actual fact, God had nothing to do with it. It is a misreading of their own history. Well, that viewpoint is riddled with problems. The first is this. The Lord Jesus Christ himself accepted Israel's history as fact. The Lord Jesus accepted the Old Testament as fact. To be a believer in the Lord Jesus is to believe what he believed, and the Lord Jesus believed the Old Testament. The professing believer, and I've met lots of them, who has dared to say, well, I, I love and I worship and I praise the Lord Jesus, but I don't believe half of what I read in the Old Testament is not a believer. You cannot believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not believe and accept what he believed and accepted. As far as Christ is concerned, the Old Testament is history. We cannot simply dismiss it as belonging to the age of mythos. What other people do is this. They, they suggest, well, really what the Bible is portraying is uh, two gods. And in the Old Testament, we have an evil god, vengeful. And uh, in the New Testament, we have a, a merciful god, a good god. One of the major proponents of this view in the, in the church's history was a man named Marcion who lived in the 3rd century. And that's actually what he taught to gods, a god of the Old Testament, a god of the New Testament. Very few people, very few professing Christians would, 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 would want anything to do with such a paradigm today. And yet, how many professing believers in reality actually subscribe to something not too far from that? They think as follows. Well, you know, in the Old Testament... It's God the Father, and he's just mean. He's angry all the time, and he's vengeful. But in the New Testament, we get God the Son, 
we have Jesus. Uh, friends, we can't believe that. That is anti-Trinitarian. Uh, yes, we, we believe in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are the one true living God. What is true of the Father is true of the Son. What is true of the Son is true of the Spirit. What is true of the Spirit is true of the Father. We cannot divorce the divine attributes. We cannot divorce and separate the divine character. We do not ascribe certain properties to the Father and certain properties to the Son and say, well, I want nothing to do with that God portrayed in the Old Testament. What I want is the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. We cannot do that. The God who at times, however horrific it may appear to us, the God who is knee-deep in blood in the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ. They are one in the same. We cannot divorce the two. And so it leaves us with a third option. And the third option is this. God isn't safe. And that is what the Bible, the Bible is teaching us. The Bible is declaring. The Bible is articulating in the clearest terms possible that God, for sinful human beings, is not safe. Why? Because he is angry. Again, that definition from the pen of William MacDonald. God's anger is his righteous indignation and fury against sin and unrepentant sinners. Now, we trip over that. We stumble over it for, for lots of reasons. Let me, let me address perhaps the two most common reasons why that really really creates a dilemma in our minds. The first is this. When we, when we hear of God's anger, we think in terms of our anger, don't we? That's our only experience of anger. Our only experience of, our, of anger is our own, how we've expressed it. And our only experience of anger is how we've experienced it at the hands of others. We hear God is angry, and so we transmit to God's anger what? Human anger. Here's the reality. 95% of the time, our anger is sinful. Uh, most of the time, our anger is an expression of pride, an expression of frustration, an expression of impatience. And so I'm trying to get from one side of Granberry to the other. Got an appointment, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And what's normally a three-minute drive turns into a 20-minute drive because I catch every red light and the right lane is closed because some Yahoo's car has broken down. And I start to pound on that steering wheel and begin to think all sorts of things, and I become what? Angry. It is a manifestation of what? Pride, impatience, and frustration. When we speak of God's anger, that's not what we're talking about. Secondly, when we, when we think of anger and we think of human anger, we need to recognize that oftentimes it is based or flows from an error in judgment. Somebody says something to us, Somebody looks at us in a different sort of way. We immediately read into it. We, 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 we think all sorts of things. We assume all sorts of things. We misjudge and we explode. And we become angry. I remember a friend of mine who was camping up in Algonquin Park, huge provincial park in Ontario. And his, he and his family had found their, their campsite in Algonquin Park, set up the tent, done everything else, went out for a nice afternoon of canoeing, returned to their campsite, realized the cooler was gone. Cooler with all the food, the food they were going to need for the two or three day camping trip. He knew there was another campsite, maybe about a half mile away. 
figured there was someone there who had stumbled upon their camp, taken their cooler, and so he assumed someone had taken it. He assumed it was someone at that other campsite who had taken it, and so off he went in a fit through the woods straight to that campsite. Halfway along the way, he heard somebody or something shaking his cooler. So he veered off into the woods, and what did he come face to face with? A bear. He had, he's still with us, don't worry. He had misjudged. He had miscalculated. He had misread, completely misread the situation. And he had what? Exploded. Far too often that's our anger, isn't it? It flows from a misjudgment, an error in judgment. Thirdly, far too often our anger, human anger, is expressed in a loss of control. We explode. We lose control. It is, it is, it is completely beyond the, 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 the object in view. Uh, we, we use it as an excuse to, to vent. But when we speak of God's anger, we are not speaking of a loss of control. The psalmist tells us the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So please, friend. If this is a stumbling block for you, this truth, God is angry, please, firstly, understand this. We are, for the most part, not talking about human anger. We are not speaking of an anger that flows from pride, impatience, or frustration. We are not speaking of an anger that, more often than not, is based on a miscalculation or a misjudgment. And we are most certainly not speaking of an anger synonymous with a loss of control. No. God's anger, says William MacDonald, is his righteous indignation and fury against sin and unrepentant sinners. And now the second thing, or the second reason why people really struggle with this concept, this truth of God's anger is this. They have a faulty view, they have a skewed understanding of the nature of God. Let's face it. Most people today who profess faith in God and profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what they really mean by that is this. They think God is someone there to help them. They think God is someone there who they can rely on to kind of get them through life. They think God is someone there who they can, they can take him or leave him whenever they want because after all, God is simply there and God simply exists uh, for me. And God's great design in life is my personal sense of peace and happiness. That's why God's... What could be more important to God than my sense of personal peace? What what, what could God possibly have in view that has greater significance than my happiness? That's what God wants. And so God is someone I can can sort of turn to as a coach. Or, or, or he's almost this kind of indulgent, grandfatherly figure who, who never makes any demands on me. He would never punish me. He wants what's best for me. And what's best for me is what I think is best for me. And what I think is best for me is that each and every day I be happy, I be prosperous, and, and just my personal sense of satisfaction and well-being be met and be satisfied. Problem is, that's not the God of Scripture. God is not primarily concerned with our happiness. God is primarily concerned with His glory. He is a great and glorious God. 
He is a God who is chiefly concerned with the manifestation of his glory, the honoring of his name. He is a holy God whose anger burns toward those who violate his holiness, who have no regard at all for his perfections, have no interest in worshiping them, but are little islands unto themselves, little self-worshippers going through life, living however they please, without any regard whatsoever for a supreme, all-glorious, all-good being God. A.W. Tozer. Have you ever read A.W. Tozer? Just read a page at a time. If you pick him up, just read a page at a time, maybe a month in between. A.W. Tozer, oh, he's, he's, he's prophetic. And he goes for the jugular far too often. And A.W. Tozer writes in one of his books, Oh, the vague hope, the vague hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate, opiate, opium, drug, a deadly drug for the consciences of millions. In other words, he's saying, look, most people are high. Not high on, on physical drugs. They're high on a misconception of God. They have convinced themselves that God is too kind to judge the godly. And in so doing, they, they have become semi-delusional. They're drugged. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer. And the command to repent goes unheeded, unheeded. Friend, be very clear of what we mean when we say anger. God's anger is his righteous indignation and fury against sin and unrepentant sinners. And friend, be very careful that your concept and understanding of God isn't merely some figment of your imagination, some mirror of your own humanity, that you have created as some superhero-like cheerleader to help you, some talisman, some rabbit's foot, sort of give you that daily uplift and, and, and help along the way to get through life. There when you want them, don't need to take, pay any heed to them if I don't want to, because all God is concerned about is me and my personal peace and security and happiness and affluence. If that's the angle we're coming from, then the reality of God's anger the reality of God's holiness is completely incompatible with that mindset. Friend, make sure the God to whom you look, the God you claim to believe in, is actually the God of Scripture. And understand this, the God of Scripture is not safe. He is not safe. It comes out and it's made abundantly clear in verse 20, isn't it? The Philistines, they want rid of the ark as quickly as possible. They devise a plan to get rid of it. And up it goes, led in this cart, led by cows, into the land of Israel. It comes to this city of Beth Shemesh. The people are excited. They sacrifice the cows to the Lord. And then what happens in verse 19? He strikes, he kills 70 of the men. Why? Because they dare to violate his command. They dare to violate his holiness. They dare to approach the God who is not safe, full of presumption, however they jolly well please. God strikes 70 of them dead. And it leads to this question in verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Friend, that is the most important question you will ever ask in life. Whoever you are, 
male, female, young, old, visitor here, regular attender. That is the question of all questions. Right there in verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And let me submit to you, there is a wrong way to stand before this holy God. And there is a right way to stand before this holy God. The wrong way is made painfully clear here in chapter 6. We see it in both the Philistines and the Israelites. In the Philistines, we see this mindset, this this wrong way of daring to stand before a holy God. For the Philistines, it doesn't matter what we believe. Did you catch that? For the Philistines, it doesn't matter what we believe. Go right back to the very first verse. There's There's an important detail hidden away in there. The very first statement. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines... How long? Seven months. This isn't a couple of hours. This isn't a couple of days. This is seven months. During those seven months, the Philistines are privy to the knowledge of God. What do they know of God? Well, firstly, they possess general revelation, don't they? They have creation. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 1 that God's invisible attributes... His divine nature is clearly seen in what has been made so that man is without excuse. They have general revelation. They have creation. Therefore, they have all that is required to acknowledge that there is a supreme being, that there is one true living God who is all-powerful, all-wise, all-good. What else do they have? Well, they have God's revelation in history, don't they? It's interesting, in chapter 4, when the battle takes place, and when the Israelites bring the ark of God into the fray, into the, into the battlefield, the Philistines, when they hear the ark is there, they're terrified. Why? Because they, know what it ha- they know, knew what had happened 300 years previously at the time of the Exodus. It is part of their collective conscience. Even as a pagan nation outside of Israel, on the outside looking in, they know what happened had happened 300 years earlier. They make reference again to it here in chapter 6. When they call up their diviners and their magicians and their sorcerers to figure out what they should do, these diviners warn them, don't harden your hearts like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Twice they appeal to an historical event, let me repeat it, which had happened centuries before. You see, they know there is one true living God. They know he is the God of Israel. They have heard of what he did at the time of the Exodus, and yet they are turning a deaf ear. And so they have general revelation. They have historical revelation in God's providence. Now they have a close encounter with God, seven months. And they take that ark, they put it in the temple of their God, their image, Dagon, one of their many gods. During the night, Dagon, that image, falls before the ark. They set the image back up again. During the second night, the image falls again. This time, its head is severed. Its hands are severed. On top of that, that God begins to afflict in order these cities of Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. They are covered with tumors. People are dying. There is this close encounter with God. And yet they are turning what? A deaf ear. 
And now they have this fourth, this fourth, like you like, access or doorway to knowledge. They reason to themselves, look, we've got to get rid of this thing. And here's what we're going to do. We'll take a new cart and we'll get two cows, milking cows, who have never been yoked. We will separate them from their calves, yoke them, fix them to the cart, put the ark in the cart, and see what happens. And several weeks ago, some of you know Dick Gisigi, several weeks ago, Laura and I were down at the, his ranch there, and they were branding the, ca- the calves, doing a few other things, which I won't mention, but that's what they were doing with these calves. And what was most troubling wasn't what was going on with the calves. You know what was most troubling for me? It was the cows. Because as those calves were penned, those cows wouldn't go anywhere. They were surrounding the pen. And the noise, the racket they were making, they were fidgety, they were anxious, they were disturbed. Why? They were milking cows separated from whom? Their calves. That's what we have here. We have two calves, uh, two, two, two cows separated from their calves, yoked. According to the nature of things, what should they do? They'll start looking for their calves. They'll start wandering home. God steps into nature and performs the supernatural. And what do those cows do? They go on their way, meek and mild, into the land of Israel. That's what the Philistines have access to. Creation, general revelation. God's workings, history, in and through providence. Their own image, their own God, headless and handless, lying prostrate in their temple, themselves afflicted with tumors, and now two cows going completely contrary to nature. They have manifestation after manifestation after manifestation of the one true living God. But as far as the Philistines are concerned, it doesn't matter what we believe. They are hardened to it. They turn a deaf ear. As for the Israelites, they aren't much better. In the Philistines, we see this mindset. It doesn't matter what we believe. In the Israelites, we see this mindset. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what we do. And so the ark is back in Israelite territory. The ark is in this town of Beth Shemesh. The people know what transpired at Sinai. The, Israel, the people know the laws governing the tabernacle, the Levitical system, the sacrifices and offerings. The people know they are forbidden from touching the ark or from looking into the ark. Seventy men dare to flagrantly disregard God's command, disobey God's command, approach him presumptuously however they saw fit. And God struck them dead. Now understand this. The ark moves from Beth Shemesh, not that far, to Kiriath Jerim. It stays there for almost 100 years. 20 years pass, Saul is anointed king. Saul reigns 40 years. And then somewhere toward the end of David's reign, David moves the ark, doesn't he? Do you remember what happens? It's almost like the Spirit of God is drawing a direct line over a hundred years. Nothing has changed here, folks. They set the ark on what? A cart pulled by two oxen, men following it all around it. The ark stumble, stumbles, the ark begins to fall, and Uzzah stretches out his hand to settle the ark. And what does God do? He strikes him dead. What is God declaring? He isn't safe. 
It does matter what you believe. It does matter what you do. Because God is holy. We are sinful. And there is an immeasurable distance, chasm, separation between a holy God and sinful man. Now we hear that word sin. And it conjures up all sorts of problems for the modern mind. Because basically our society denies the concept of sin. And so we have today the disease model when it comes to explaining sin. It's a biological attempt to explain deviant behavior. And so scientists can tell us that they can identify a rogue chromosome for just about every deviant behavior on the face of the earth. Well, if you lie or you're immoral or you do this or you do that, it's actually natural. There are biological explanations for it. That is the disease model. And secondly, we live today in a society which which has accepted not merely the disease model but the trauma model. The disease model is a biological attempt to explain away sin. The trauma model is a sociological attempt to explain away sin, according to which any deviant behavior that you manifest now as an adult really isn't your fault. But if you trace back to some trauma that you experienced previously in your life, and so if you have anger issues, you blame your mother. Or if you have eating disorder, you blame your cousin. If you have this disorder, it's because of something that happened on May 17, 1972. If, you, if you're manifesting this kind of behavior, it's exactly because of this happened in the past. And so we have this biological attempt and this sociological attempt to explain away sin and absolve the individual of all responsibility. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's my natural makeup. Or it's something that happened to me in the past that I need to come to grips with. Oh, no, the Bible portrays sin something very different, doesn't it? The Bible portrays sin as our very being, our very essence, conceived in sin, born in sin, bred in sin, whereby our very nature is anti-God. We are little idol worshipers in love with ourselves who have no time for God. Now, check that. We have time for God as long as he is a God created in our own image. As long as he is a God who mirrors my distorted sense of sentiment and right and wrong, I like that God. We have no time for the God of Scripture. No time for the God of God's Word. No time for the God of Revelation. No, we will be God. We will be our own gods. And we will do and we will live and we will choose and and we will enjoy whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want. There was a crime commission years ago taken in Minnesota, I think it was about three decades ago, and it states the following, every baby starts life as a little savage. This wasn't written by a Christian. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch, deny him these wants and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal. That's our problem, friends. We are by nature sinners. Let me, let me really try to bring this home, and really try to bring it home for the kids here. It's true. Two, two truths we must always, we must never lose sight of. The first is human dignity. We're created in the image of God. That's where we get our sense of self-worth from. The fact that we're created in the image of God. That's the first truth. 
The second truth is this. That image is corrupt. Human depravity. Human depravity. And, and one of the clearest, clearest expressions of this human depravity, and I really want to speak to the kids here, is in that, in that book, in that movie, and I know many of you have probably seen it, The Lord of the Rings, right? I'm sure most of the kids have seen that. Many of the adults have probably seen it as well or read the books. And there you have Sauron, that great uh, wizard, evil, fashions that ring. And that ring is lost in battle. Eventually the ring falls into the hands of the hobbits. And Frodo has the responsibility to do what? Take the ring to Mount Doom and destroy it. Frodo eventually gets there. He's standing on the precipice. The flames are below him. He has the ring. What can't he do? He can't throw it. He can't do it. He can't get rid of it. Understand what Tolkien is is conveying there in that very simple, very point, a very clear message. Frodo knows how evil the ring is. Frodo knows the battles caused, the suffering experienced. He knows what is coming. He knows what is doing to him. He sees himself mirrored in that transformation. Is it Smeagol? Smeagol becomes Golgol or whatever his name is. He sees himself mirrored in Smeagol. He knows the control it has on him. He knows the havoc it is wreaking in his life. He knows it is destroying him little by little. He hates the ring, but he loves the ring. And he won't let go of it. Friend, that's sin. That's what Tolkien is conveying there. That is Sin. We are consumed by it, a love of self, which is utterly, in the final end, destructive. Many people know it, and yet they can't let go of that self-love. It enslaves us. And as we stand before a holy God, hear this and understand this, our sin makes God unsafe. He is a holy God. We are sinful humans. And therefore, there is a great, immeasurable, unsurmountable chasm between us. That is the wrong way to stand before God. It is to think that what we believe doesn't matter. It is to think what we do doesn't matter. No, the right way to stand before God, the starting point is this, to understand, really understand, who and what we are before a holy God. Now, when we understand who and what we are before a holy God, we begin to grasp the fact that something has to change. That if God is as holy as Scripture portrays Him to be, and if I truly am as sinful as Scripture portrays me to be, and if it is true that God isn't safe, and I see evidence of it here in First Samuel, if it is true that God strikes dead 70 men who dare to take the mercy seat, the lid off the Ark of the Covenant, and gaze inside it, if that is true, what hope is there for me? Something must change. And the answer to that change, the answer to that need is a word, and this is a big word, I'm making no apologies for using it. We must understand this word. It is simply this, propitiation. Propitiation. Now, we hear the word propitiation, to propitiate, to appease. And again, it seems so often we have to correct our understanding, don't we? Because we hear that word propitiation, and and, and we get all sorts of false notions surrounding it. Uh, You you, you think, for example, of that that famous story, the, the sacking of Troy. And you think, was it Prince Paris who, who, who took Helen to, to Troy? And the Greeks gathered their armies together and decided they're going to sail to Troy to take Helen back. 
They set out their fleet, set out upon the Mediterranean Sea. There's an opposing wind, and they can't get any further. And so Agamemnon, who's the general of the Greeks, what does he do? He sends back to his home city for his daughter. Bring her. They bring dutifully his daughter, and he proceeds to sacrifice her to a god, to propitiate that god. Why? Because you see, for the Greeks, in the Greek pantheon, in Greek and Roman mythology, the gods are essentially childish superheroes. That's what they are. The gods are little children with supernatural powers. The gods are just as bad as humans. And the gods are petty. And the gods become envious of one another. And the gods, gods become envious and, and, and really displeased if humans begin to show more interest to one god and, and neglect this god. Well, then the gods do something to make their life go poorly in order to get their attention. And so that god whom I've offended because I've been paying too much attention to his rival god, well, that god must now be appeased. And so what I need to do is I need to present a gift. And the more expensive the gift, the more likely I will appease that god. And that's what the Philistines think in the story, isn't it? What do they make? Five golden tumors. What's that all about? I like to see those. Five golden mice. Why? Because they believe in a pantheon, a plethora of gods. They believe the gods are simply childish superheroes. They believe the gods get offended with one another and offended with them. And what they need to do now is give some sort of expensive gift to get that god off their back. And sadly, when many people hear the word propitiation, they think in that sort of realm. But that is not biblical propitiation. When we think of propitiation, we need to understand three key concepts. The first is this. There is an offended person. That's true. God. There is an offending person. Man. You and me. There is an offense that must be taken away. Sin. The fact that we have disobeyed an all-glorious God. The fact that we worship ourselves. The fact that we are governed by self-interest. The fact that out of sin we have rebelled against this God. His law has been disobeyed. His justice has been offended. Therefore, he must be propitiated. As the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 3, that God put forward Christ, as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. That's the gospel, friend. That God put forward, God displayed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. And so we have an offended person, God. We have an offending person, man. We have an offense that must be taken away and dealt with our sin. And at Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus Christ enters hell and bears the punishment of a holy God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the object of God's righteous indignation. The Lord Jesus Christ becomes the object of God's wrath and fury. The Lord Jesus Christ experiences hell at cross he, at the cross. The Son is forsaken by the Father. He becomes a curse for us that we might become in turn the righteousness of God. 
So the hymn writer penned it so well. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. That's the right way. That's the right way. Is God safe? No. Is God angry? No. But praise God, he has been propitiated through the public display and offering of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is God angry? Yes. Is God safe? No. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, God abounds in mercy. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ could declare, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Here again, Paul's words in Romans 3.25. God publicly displayed, he put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Have you believed? I've never made an altar calling in my three years here. And I'm not going to start now, but I'm going to declare in most uncertain terms, whosoever will may come. Have you believed? The propitiation has been made. The price has been paid in full. The Father, God, is propitiated through Christ's life given at Calvary's cross, whereby his anger, his wrath is turned away. His justice, his righteousness is satisfied. And mercy flows fast and free to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love is not a trickling stream, but a flooding river. His love is not a small puddle but an unfathomable ocean. His love is not a flickering candle, but a blinding sun. His love abounds to all who are one through faith with his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he has displayed publicly as a propitiation by his blood. Have you believed? Guilty, vile, and helpless we, Spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Pray with me. Our blessed Lord Jesus, before your cross we kneel, and we see the ugliness of our sin. We see our iniquity, which caused you to become a curse. We see our transgression, which caused you to bear the guilt. See our evil which caused you to be forsaken. We see your crown of thorns, your pierced hands and feet, and your battered body. We hear your cry of agony. We see you, the object of divine wrath, and we praise you. Your blood is the blood of incarnate God. Its worth is is infinite. Its value is measureless. It wipes away the deepest stain of sin. O Lord Jesus, accept the praise we bring. In your matchless name we offer it. Amen.